your church. In Jesus' name, amen. America is increasingly becoming a very spiritual country. But it's not a revival of the old-time religion. Though it sounds great, hey, we're becoming more spiritual. It's not always the good kind of spirituality. People are open to anything, it seems. More on the fringe, here's an uh, article from The Hollywood Reporter. That is fringe. There's a new church in Portland, Oregon, according to this article. It's called the Church of Kurt Cobain. It is a non-denominational church. It is named after the rock singer who committed suicide in 1994. The pastor and founder is Jim Dillon. He says, quote, This is a serious thing. This is not a joke. The church hopes to find meaning in the lyrics and the tragic life of who it's named after, Kurt Cobain. If you uh, cruise the World Wide Web, the superhighway, a couple of fans have established, quote, the first international church of Tory, named after folk rocker Tory Amos. On this internet site, they feature a bulletin board called the Altar Room, the Altar Room. And fans share their testimonies of how Tory has changed their lives. One fan writes, quote, you know me better than I know myself, and you save me. Another fan wrote, Now I thank my savior, idol, and my inspiration, Tori Amos. She has been known for her disturbing lyrics as well as her theology. Uh, what's ironic is that she's the daughter of a Baltimore, Maryland minister who in a recent interview with Spin Magazine wrote, or said, I wanted to marry Lucifer even though I had a crush on Jesus. There was a church, the church of Thyatira, mentioned here now in Revelation chapter 2, who had problems with a woman they were tolerating. They were tolerating her false doctrine. What's more, they had no discernment. Nobody seemed disturbed about what she was doing, what she was teaching. It was immoral. And so Jesus writes a letter. It's the longest letter of all of these seven letters, and yet Thyatira was the smallest city of all of the seven cities. In fact, many scholars wonder, why did Jesus bother writing such a long letter to such an out-of-the-way place? It was way out on the plain. Nobody really went to it. It had a few temples. It had a few notable things. But it was such a small place. Well, you know, you can have big problems in small places. Sometimes we think, if I could just leave the city and find a small country environment where everybody's holy and perfect, or if I could sm find a smaller church where it's people, you know, are of a different sort. Listen, corruption is universal. You'll find it everywhere, whether it's a small scale or a large scale. A few things about Thyatira. It was known as a commercial city. That is, it had numerous guilds. If you wanted to work, you had to belong to a union. If you were a cobbler, you belonged to the cobbler's guild. If you were a potter, to the potter's guild. If you worked with bronze, to the bronze worker's guild. Each guild had its temple. Each temple had its god. So if you wanted to belong to that guild, you had to be involved in some of that system. It was also known for its wool, a special kind of wool. 
It was a purple wool. Thyatira was the center of the most expensive kind of garments in that part of the world. And they would take a special shellfish from the Mediterranean Sea called the murex and extract a purple dye drop by drop and dye wool with it. It cost about 300 bucks, the equivalent, to dye one pound of wool. And we know of a woman who did this. Her name was Lydia. We read about her in the book of Acts. She was Paul's first convert in Europe. She's called a certain woman named Lydia, a seller of purple from Thyatira. It's the only other time this church is really mentioned, given any notoriety, is that Lydia, the first convert, was from there. Probably she went back to Thyatira and was part of the influence to get a church started. Also, for the sake of background, it'll come in handy, there was a temple for fortune tellers, sort of like their ancient equivalent of the 1-900-psychic hotline. And there was a woman who presided over it as the chief prophetess or oracle. Now, in verse 18, where we begin, the judge is introduced To the angel of the church in Thyatira write, These things says the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire. His feet are like fine brass. I know your works, service, faith, patience. As for your works, the last are more than the first. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you because... You allow that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, to teach and seduce my servants to commit sexual immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent of her sexual immorality, and she did not repent. Indeed, I will cast her into a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation, unless they repent of their deeds. Right off the bat, we see that this letter is a little firmer. It's a little more radical in approach. It's approached with judgment this time. Jesus' words are more severe. There were times when my parents were very tender to me, and there were times when they were more severe with me, depending on me, not their mood as much as my behavior. Uh, Most of the time, parents address their kids by the first name. But if kids are really bad, do you notice how parents like to say first, middle, and last name? in their approach. They're still their parents. Those kids are still their kids, but their approach is a little bit different. My brother Bob would always get into trouble and have this happen to him. I remember overhearing, Bob, Bob, and if he was really bad, Robert Michael Heitzig, and I thought, "Uh uh-oh, he really did something bad because his approach, the approach of my parents, it could be that we brought a snake inside the house that we found outside, or uh, my brother would throw me through a window, or I'd chase him with a knife. You know, all the things that boys and girls do when they're young. (laughs) The approach then would be stern, but the relationship was always there. And sometimes God's approach to us is nice and warm and loving, and other times it's still loving, but it's firm. It is disciplinary. It shouldn't shock us. The writer of Hebrews says, Do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens. He reproves or rebukes every son whom he receives. Jesus is introduced to this church as the Son of God. It's the only time in Revelation this term is used. 
It speaks here of authority. The Son of God is coming to you. And he comes with two elements. Two elements from the vision in chapter 1. Remember we said that every time Jesus introduces himself to a church, he pulls something out of the vision John saw in chapter 1. The two things that Jesus brings from that vision are eyes of burning fire and feet of brass, which speaks of judgment. He is coming with a penetrating gaze. He is walking through the midst of the church in judgment. One day Jesus will look at you. His eyes will be looking at you. You'll see him face to face. But I don't want to see this kind of look. Again, I still remember the gaze of my father. He had a certain look about him. Do you know what I mean? Did your dad have the same look? And just by that look, I thought, he's like looking through me. He's reading my soul, so to speak. The other day I was listening as I thought I heard my son trying to sneak a snack from the pantry. And I turned around the corner of my study, and sure enough, there he was, slowly opening the door going for the Tootsie Rolls. I don't mind him. If he would have asked me, I would have said, sure, but he didn't ask. He tried to sneak. So he opened the door and he kind of looks around, but I was kind of behind him just watching. (laughs) Suddenly he turned his head a little bit to the left and saw that gaze and went, "Ah!" (laughs) It's funny. Sometimes people will be having a conversation or doing something and Let's say I'm in that store or out in the community and all of a sudden they realize that skip and they get a little nervous because of what they're saying or what they're doing or what they're drinking or whatever. I'm thinking, why should I make you nervous? God's been watching all the time. He hasn't made you nervous. Do you think you get by with anything from the gaze of God? The writer of Hebrews said, all things are open and naked before the eyes of the one of whom we must give an account. You're not pulling anything off. The church is observed in the next several verses. We read a little bit about it. And and something to notice, Jesus takes a sandwich approach. If you counsel anybody, mark this approach. He doesn't come in and say, okay, I've got something against you. He first says, this is what I like about you. And he closes by saying, listen, you don't have to go this way. They're words of positivity and words of encouragement. And then he gives the rebuke in between. Let's see what he approves of. He says, I know your works, verse 19, love, service, faith, your patience, and for your works the last or more than the first. That's a good list. Now he mentions their service. It's a word you've heard before, diakonia. Deacon comes from this word. The word deacon does not mean a paid professional or somebody who's elevated on a pedestal. It means somebody who spontaneously, voluntarily will show his love to another person by serving the needs of another person. That's what it means. One who gives his love in service for another. One of the marks of the world is they are self-absorbed. Their life is spent on them. What about me? What about my needs? Is the cry of the modern man. And I've always been interested to see sort of how this trend has been seen in our society in the magazine racks. In the 1950s, we came up with Life magazine, this generic look at life. 
After several years, we started developing People Magazine. Let's just focus in life on people. The last several years has been the magazine Us. So from life to people to us, and now there's Self Magazine. Listen, if you want to beat this whole thing and kind of have the next magazine that's going to really take over, call it Me. That's where we're going, from life to people to self is the trend of our society. But the church, on the other hand, was always known for its tender care for other people. They loved people. They served people. Jesus said, I noticed that about you. You have that voluntary, spontaneous love that is demonstrated because love is always demonstrated in practical service. Around 200 A.D., an unbeliever in observing the Christian church, wrote a letter about their fellowship. He said, It is incredible to see the fervor with which these people of that religion help each other in their needs. They spare nothing, for Jesus has put it into their heads that they are brethren. Now, not only did they have the patience and the love and the works and all this good stuff, but it was something that was increasing. Verse 19, toward the end, As for your works, the last are more than the first. They learned the vital lesson that the Christian life is not static, but it is growth, it's developing. It was an increasing kind of a thing. Whenever you try to coast or put it on cruise control, your Christian life goes backwards. You can't coast if you're bicycling uphill. You can't coast. You won't coast forward. You'll coast backwards. And they learn that it has to be something where they are growing. Now this brings up a question. So far we've got a profile of a great group of people. Love, patience, all this stuff Jesus mentioned. Increasing works. With a profile like that, with a church with that kind of a personality, how is it possible that they would be guilty of the charges he's about to bring against them? In fact, let's read those charges. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you because you allow that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess to teach and seduce my servants to commit sexual immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent of her sexual immorality. She did not repent. Indeed, I will cast her into a sick bed and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation unless they repent of their deeds. How is it that a church that was that awesome could be thus indicted? And I can only think of one answer. The answer is this. The church was active in works, but it was not bound completely to the word. Yes, they were interested in social action, but to them, social action superseded discernment. Discernment had become a dirty word. There was corruption without discernment. Notice how Jesus crafts his accusation. I have something against you. These things you allow this woman. You allow it. The idea is that you are tolerating something. It's not that you are ignorant, and I'm bringing this suddenly to your attention. You've known about it all along, and you're letting it go on. You're allowing somebody in your midst to teach the opposite of what I've taught you, which is to be holy. Here is a gal who's teaching moral laxness. And you see it, and you know it, and you don't do anything about it. It seems that there was 
a gal called Jezebel. I think that's really her spiritual nickname rather than her real name. In fact, some people think that she was that prophetess from the temple of the fortune tellers that had some kind of a conversion, quote unquote. Her name was Sambath. And she had some kind of a conversion experience, so to speak. She was allowed into the church, and because she was so notable in the community, well, hey, let's let her teach. And she taught that which was false. Notice something else about her in these phrases. She calls herself a prophetess, Jesus said. It's not that the church said, here's a leader that we designate. She's passed the character test. She's passed the doctrine test. She came along and called herself a prophetess. Very easy to do. I have a word from God. Well, how do I know you're from God? Don't you touch God's anointed. I said so. Well, so what? Anybody can be self-authenticating. And this woman was self-authenticating, drew a crowd aside, said, I have a message from God. I'm called of God. But it wasn't by the local leadership. It was self-appointed. You know, sometimes Christians get intimidated by people like this. A person will say, God spoke to me, and he has a message for you. Instead of saying, no, wait a minute, how do I know that? Somehow it's unspiritual to be discerning. You just have to go along and go, okay, hey, well, praise God. You know, whatever he has, I'll be open because I don't want to fight against God. Now, I'm not saying you should fight against God. I'm not saying that you should be judgmental. I'm saying don't be gullible. Ephesus had discernment, and Jesus commended them for it. This church has no discernment. And Jesus goes against it. Now, why is she called Jezebel? Well, notice it says, because she's teaching and seducing my servants, says Jesus, to commit sexual immorality. In other words, she's very much like the woman in the Old Testament named Jezebel. She fits the character description to a T. Let me tell you about Jezebel in the Old Testament. You remember reading about her. She was married to a guy named Ahab. A wicked, and I would add, a spineless dude. Very much was Ahab like the church in Thyatira because his wife sort of wore the pants in the family spiritually and in every other way, and he just said, Yes, dear. I'd like to have a temple to these false gods. Yes, dear. And I'd like you to kill the prophets of God. Yes, dear. And he was tolerating her falseness. Her father was a pagan priest, Ethbaal, of the Sidonians. She was a foreigner, and she brought a false worship system into Israel. Here was the clencher. She didn't come on the scene and say, my religion is better than your religion. Thus, let's get rid of the Hebrew religion and establish the worship of Ashtoreth. No, what she said is, let's combine them. Let's syncretize them. Let's bring in false worship and mix it with true worship. And that was the reason that she caused all of Israel to fall into idolatry. Well, this gal in the church at Thyatira, much like Jezebel, did the same thing. She was teaching, she was seducing people to commit sexual immorality. If I were to paint a composite picture of probably what happened, it's this. If you work in the city, you have to belong to a trade guild. To belong to a trade guild, because if you want to work, you have to belong to one. That means you'll have to come to some of the feasts in the temples. They're going to cut an animal and sacrifice it to an idol, and there'll be a little bit of immorality and drunkenness. But if you want a job, you better be there. 
And probably she thought all in the name of, well, we got to keep our jobs, so we have to go along with all of that false stuff. Well, the modern equivalent of the church of Thyatira or Jezebel would be somebody who would say, let's mix religion, other religions, with Christianity. Let's put it all together and not make Christianity exclusive because we all have a part of God, a part of the truth. So we'll all be together. Some churches mix occultism with Christianity. There are New Age churches, so-called. There are crystal churches. There are metaphysical churches. The worship that Jezebel in this church was trying to push would be like somebody saying, well, you can be a Christian and still be a transcendental meditator or a Zen Buddhist or anything else. In fact, these other disciplines will help you in your spirituality. Well, there's a big push these days toward that, isn't there? Generic spirituality. From an article in a local newspaper, New Age author Ann Carson advised people on how to couch, as she said, their pagan philosophy by using the right words. She says, quote, Use the language of diplomacy. Say prayer, not magic or spell. Let me say a prayer over you. No thanks. Say prayer instead of magic or spell. Say ceremony, but not ritual. She says, that way I can tell my aunt that we had a blessing ceremony for our infant daughter under the auspices of a Dutch Reformed minister, leaving out the invocation of the four elements, the sprinkling of cornmeal, and the bestowal of a spirit name, all things which are occultic. Now, let's pause for a minute before we move into this text a little more. I'm making a plea for discernment. For people who would be bold enough to say, I'm not ashamed of the truth. I'm not ashamed of drawing a distinguishing line and saying, that's false. That's error. This is truth. That is so lacking in the church today. It's, it seems like the cool thing is to blur the lines and have many shades of gray, but not black and white. John wrote to the early church, and he said, Brethren, beloved, do not believe every spirit, 1 John chapter 4, verse 1, but test the spirits and see whether they are of God, for many false prophets have gone out into the world. Goodness, if he said that 2,000 years ago, and many false prophets had already gone out by then, what about now? Many false prophets have gone out into the world. Do you know there's a spiritual gift called the gift of discernment? Pray for it. It's the ability to distinguish between truth and error. When somebody claims, I'm inspired, I've got divine revelation. We have to learn to discern, to not be gullible. Just because a guy wears a collar, carries a Bible, is on national television, has a radio program, smiles, knocks on your door, rides a bicycle, or whatever else, does not necessarily mean they are representing the true God. I'm not saying everybody who says that they are automatically write off. I'm saying learn to discern. Discernment had become a dirty word in this church. Don't let it be a dirty word in your vocabulary. It's not wrong to discriminate. Jesus said, judge ye a righteous judgment. Do you? This church did not. In fact, Jesus said, beware of false prophets. They come to you in what kind of clothing? 
Ah, sheep's clothing. You see, false prophets don't wear badges that say, I am a false prophet. (laughs) They do not knock on your door or get on the television and say, I am your local neighborhood deceiver. Could I have a few minutes of your time to rip you off spiritually? Okay. That's not going to happen. They're going to use the names and the words and all of the Christianese. They're going to speak sheep talk. They're not going to go, they're going to go, and you're going to go, oh, they speak my language. They're also sheep. Jesus said, beware of them. Remember the Wizard of Oz? As that little band of four look up and they see that big face with the smoke, this is the great Oz. And they start shaking. And little Toto goes over to where the curtain is and gently pulls back the curtain. And you see that guy who is behind the controls making this face move. And the man behind the curtain sees that they see him. And what does he say? Pay no attention to the man behind the curtain. (laughs) That's what wolves do. Pay no attention to the wolf behind the sheep's clothing. No, pay attention to the man behind the curtain. Look deeply. Test them. You say, well, how can I tell them? Let me give you three easy tests that you can apply to anyone who says anything in the name of God. Number one, it's the test of character. The test of character. Paul spoke about having the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is just the character of Christ that's developed in a disciple of Jesus Christ by the Spirit of Jesus Christ. Look at the character. Not, wow, he's got a great message. What does he live like? The test of character. This woman, Jezebel, had a loose character. There was no evidence of fruit. People want to see truth. Next, there is the test of creed. Creed. What, is they, what do they teach? What do they say? Especially, what do they say about Jesus? Who was he? A God? A good guy? Or was he God the Son come in human flesh? What do they say about the work of Jesus Christ? That his death paid the penalty for the sins of the world, that whoever would call on him would have everlasting life? Are they adding, well, you have Jesus, but you need this too? What do they say about Jesus Christ? Many people like Jezebel worship the Jesus of the broad road, not the Jesus of the New Testament, who said, it's a narrow gate. They would say, well, Jesus and metaphysics, Jesus and this. Remember, Paul wrote to the Galatians, and he said, I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him who called you to a different gospel, which is not another, but there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. But listen to his follow-up. But even though we, or an angel from heaven, preach any other gospel to you than what you have received, let him be accursed. That is strong language. Test what they are like in character. Test their creed. There's a very dramatic example of this. A guy by the name of Victor Ernest wrote a book called I Talked with Spirits because he did. He was a spiritist. He was an occultist. And while he was still an unbeliever, he happened to be reading the New Testament, and he came across 1 John chapter 4. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test them and see whether they're of God. So he thought, fair enough, I'll try it. He came to a seance. The medium that was in the trance overtaken by a spirit 
the spirit supposedly spoke through her and said, I'll grant each of you three wishes. And sound, I know, like a genie, but it's not. I'll grant each of you three questions, excuse me. He thought, this has never happened before in any of the seances that I've been involved in. So he started asking probing questions. First question, is Jesus Christ the Son of God? There was a smooth yes affirmation through this medium by the Spirit. He thought, well, that's interesting. And he asked a second question. He said, do you believe Jesus Christ is the Savior of the world? At this point, the Spirit through the medium rebuked him for his doubt. Finally, his third question was this. Spirit, do you believe Jesus Christ was the Son of God? That Jesus Christ was the Savior of the world? That he died on the cross and shed his blood for the remission of sins? Victor Ernest said at this point the medium was hurled to the floor from her chair and broke the trance. He thought, that's it. Something's wrong. He never went to a seance again. In fact, he's now a pastor. He was converted. But he tested the spirits to see whether they were of God. Third test is the test of converts. You listen to what they say, you listen to their, and look at their lifestyle, but then watch the fruit blossom. Don't make a judgment in wintertime. Wait till the spring and you see the blossoming effect of the followers who are listening to this person or this teaching. In the case of Thyatira, this woman's teaching led to a spiritual seduction caused others to commit sexual immorality and be turned away. This is what Paul meant when he wrote to Timothy and he said about false prophets, their message will spread just like a cancer. In other words, the walks will be eroded. The walk of faith will be eroded. Now, before we jump in uh, to the rest of this and, and bring it to a close, many scholars look at the church of Thyatira prophetically, just as the church of Ephesus was the apostolic church, the church of Smyrna was the persecuted church from the second to the fourth century, and then there was the church that married itself to the world. They see now, historically, the church of Thyatira was that church that once they got entrenched with the world and brought in a lot of the pagan systems, started getting involved in weird practices. There was a time in church history when they called the church Mother Church and referred to her as a woman, as their mother, the church. They got involved with image worship and superstition. They became bound to it. And many scholars see a corollary. Well, let's finally close up with the admonishment that Jesus gives to these folks. In verse 21, I gave her time to repent of her sexual immorality, and she did not repent. What he does is first address the followers of this woman and the woman herself speaking to the church, but about this group. I gave her time to repent. She didn't. And Jesus says, because they didn't repent, they're in big trouble. You know that Jesus doesn't like to judge. When you read this, don't think, see, God is always liking to judge people. Just like point his finger at them and say, I'm mad at you. He said, I tried to get them to turn and repent. The Bible says God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. That's what he wanted them to do, but that's not what she wanted to do. She didn't want to turn. She wanted to stay exactly in the place that she was at. Jesus wept over Jerusalem. Do you remember? Oh, Jerusalem, how often I would have gathered you as a hen gathers her chicks, but you were not willing. I'm sure Jesus looks at America the same way. 
How often, and yet you were not willing. And so the message here is, I will cast her, verse 22, into a sick bed, and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation, unless they repent of their deeds, and I will kill her children with death, and all the churches will know that I am he who searches the minds and the hearts, and I will give to each one of you according to your works. Now what does that mean? I'm going to cast you into tribulation, great tribulation. It could mean a few things. Number one, in the immediate sense, it could refer to persecution by the Roman government. It could mean, secondly, in the moral sense, that you will reap the repercussions for your sexual immorality, i.e., disease, suffering. I'll cast you in a sick bed. You love the bed? Where do you see the bed I've got for you? I'll simply let you take what is naturally occurring if you're involved in sexually immoral behavior. Gonorrhea and syphilis were very common diseases and very widespread during that time. And it could be that he's referring to that. Oh, you want sexual freedom? Well, look what happens. Now, those of us who grew up in the 60s and 70s remember the sexual revolution. Forget, man, what everybody else says. The older generation, they're so stiff. Free love. You know that we were sold a bill of goods? It's like the real estate guy says, Have I got a deal for you? Choice land. You find out it's swamp in the Everglades. You think, you know, I've been ripped off. Because after all of the revolution and free love, look at the children who have followed those precepts. There's no utopia for them. They're crying out in misery. And that could be what Jesus refers to here, tribulation in the moral sense. Or, number three, tribulation in the prophetic sense. He could be referring to the great tribulation, the period of judgment on the earth, saying that this system, this church system, will last all the way to the end. The reason I bring that up is look at verse 25. But hold fast what you have till I come. In other words, this system will be extant. It will be in operation at the time that he comes. And he's saying to some, hold fast. Don't get involved in that. Either way you slice it, he's saying you're going to get afflicted. Don't do that. And we'll close with what he says to the faithful followers. Verse 24. Now to you I say, to the rest in Thyatira... As many as do not have this doctrine and have not known the depths of Satan, but they say, as they say, I will put on you no other burden, but hold fast what you have till I come, and he who overcomes and keeps my works until the end. To him I will give power over the nations. He will rule them with a rod of iron. They shall be dashed to pieces like a potter's vessel." As I have also received from my Father, and I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He promises authority. It's a quote out of Psalm 2. Jesus will rule with a rod of iron in the millennium, a thousand years of peace upon the earth. We'll get to this and develop it later on in Revelation. Jesus says, look, stick with me, man. If you stick with me, you will rule with me and reign with me for a thousand years even has been prophesied that my Father would give me a kingdom. You will share in that glory with me. He finally closes off with saying, I'll give you the morning star, verse 28. I'll give you the morning star. That's a symbol, obviously, and the question is, what exactly does he mean? In Revelation 22, we find the answer, just like in school. The answers are always in the back of the book. 
In Revelation 22, I quote out of verse 16, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you the things in the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David, the bright and the morning star. I'll give you the morning star. Now, I think to unlock the interpretation of what he is saying, you need to see it in its context. Back in verse 24, he says, To the rest I say and to, the, to you, as many as have not this doctrine, who do not know the depths of Satan as they say. It was common practice by false religious groups in that time to speak about having the deep things of God. The Gnostics used to say that. Well, I know you're a Christian and you go to this church, but if you really want to know the deep things of God and true spiritual stuff that nobody other Christians really have but us, come to our group. We have the depths of God. And no doubt these people of Thyatira who followed Jezebel would say, well, we, we have grace. We really understand what the depths of God are. Jesus said, the depths of Satan, you mean. Let me correct you on that. They talk about having this depth. Jesus said, I'll give you the morning star. In other words, when you have me, you don't need anything else. And I will come for you. They will be cast into tribulation. I will come for you. I'll give you the morning star. That was good news to this group. They needed discernment. Where does discernment fit into your scale of important attributes for a Christian to have? Jesus said to the church of Ephesus, I commend that you are intolerant of evil and false teaching. To the church of Thyatira, he said, you got a lot of good stuff happening, but your problem is you don't have discernment on that which is evil. There is a fish in Central America, South America, lives in the rivers. They call, it's a minnow-like fish. They call it four eyes, not because it wears contacts or glasses. <laughs> but the way it lives is a fitting description of how Christians ought to live and process what is called truth. You see, four eyes travels through the water with these big, bulging eyes, half of which are in the air above the surface of the water, half of which are below the surface. Interesting composite. It's got an air lens on top, sort of like bifocals, and a water lens on the bottom. So it can go through the water and see any predators above the water and see below the surface as well, because sometimes predators aren't always readily seen. That's how we should process what people say, this is from God. Well, great. My eyes are open. I'll take it at surface face value. But then I'll also look to the depths in the underworld, below the surface, to see what it's really like. That's how we ought to live our life. The church of Thyatira did not. Let's overcome that. Father, we would thank you in the name of Jesus for a spirit of discernment among your people. We don't want to be judgmental, but we do want to judge a righteous judgment. We do want to be discriminating. That is a mandate. Your word says that you're spiritual if you have discernment, not if you don't. So show us the balance. Once again, as we go through this world of looking above the surface as well as below it, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. 
Amen. Amen. Amen.